Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right, we are uh, on on part two of our 10-week series for the Book of Romans. Uh, Okay, who's in the room? I'm like, oh, all the kids left at this point. Great. This is um, the second half of Romans chapter one, um, which is one of the six, uh, well, there is in here one of the six uh, what's been called clobber passages. Um, But I think we did a good job last Sunday at laying the groundwork for reading the Book of Romans through the lens of empire. Uh, and, and, and from the perspective of those on the margins. Uh, and so I actually think this text in Romans is, is so beautiful uh, when we read it uh, responsibly and attentively. Um, and I will say, just before I, I'm going to first read the text and then unpack a few things. Um, but before that, I want to acknowledge that Paul is writing to a particular group of people or like a particular group of house churches, and they're divided. There would be people from both sides of the sort of political and ideological spectrum um, people who represented empire and people who represented, um, you know, the super vulnerable on the margins. And the community would be divided. There would be, as there is in every single community that has any hint of diversity at all, there would be an us versus them dynamic. And that could be us, the, the, the people who've been here a long time, versus them, the new people. Uh, it could be us, you know, more conservative versus progressive, or us more progressive, more con- like, and, and he's speaking to this. And so Paul is a brilliant uh rhetorician and and he does this profound thing um, and sometimes we lose this when you kind of break a book of the bible up into chunks instead of read it in one sitting but what he does here in the second half of chapter one is he's going to play into the us versus them dynamic he's going to be like those gentiles am i right come on let's talk about those gentiles and he'd be like oh they're totally perverted they'll sleep with anything like he and he'll just go on and you can imagine like there's gentiles in the room or people who would be called that by the insiders and he's saying it, and so he must be saying it a bit with like a wink in his eye of like, you know, you, you can be a good pastor, I think, if you can kind of make fun of some of the dynamics in the community. Um, but if you just stop at the end of chapter one, you're like, wow, yeah, those Gentiles are the worst. But what we're going to try and do a bit today is just hint at what's coming in chapter two, because he's like, yeah, now let's talk about the other side in the same room and realize that there is no such thing as us versus them. That's like sometimes a fake, a fake uh, set of labels to keep us divided and He's like, we're actually all in this together, and we're all trying our best, and we're all trying to heal uh, and, and build a better world, and, and he, he really does a good job at bringing people together. So we have to like let Paul do his work here in chapter one and let him pull out the extreme stereotypes about people on the us versus them divide, uh, and then see all of us um, on both sides, I think. So I'm going to read the text, Romans 1, 18 to 2, verse 1. For God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. This is because what is known about God should be plain to them, because God made it plain to them. (laughs) Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things God has made. So humans are without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God or thank him. Instead, their reasoning became pointless, and their foolish hearts were darkened. While they were claiming to be wise, they made fools of themselves. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that look like mortal humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to their heart's desires, 
which led to the moral corruption of degrading their own bodies. I put that in bold on this because there's two um, phrases in this text that I think are profound, degrading and another one is unnatural. Um, and so just notice that because it'll come up in a moment here. Um, moral corruption of degrading their own bodies with each other. They traded God's truth for a lie and they worshiped and served the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And the second half of the text is, that's why God abandoned them to degrading lust. Uh, in this translation, it says, they're females traded natural sexual relations for unnatural sexual relations. What a, what a category, like natural and unnatural. Like what a, how do we define that? That'll be interesting here. Also, in the same way, males traded natural sexual relations with females and burned with lust for each other. Males performed shameful actions with males and they were paid back with the penalty they deserved for their mistake in their own bodies. Uh, there's a lot of pain in that text and that text has been used to cause a lot of pain. And I think when we read it through Paul's context, we will see in a moment um, a profound and, and provocative statement he's making. So, since they didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God abandoned them to a defective mind to do inappropriate things. So they were filled with all injustice. Now notice here all of the things considered injustice and notice in yourself maybe if, because if, I, I certainly came from a tradition that would consider like sexual sin uh, way, way worse than things like gossip. And in this list, imagine if we treated all these things equally. He writes, um, so they were filled with all injustice, wicked behavior, greed, and evil behavior. Like, wicked, greed, evil. Interesting. They are full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deception, and malice. They are gossips. They slander people and they hate God. Notice Paul's use of the word they. The us versus them. They. Those people. Like as if Paul's, you know, none of us are that they. It's really easy to preach this and easy to read this and be like, yeah, those people. Those people out there. And that's part of Paul's argument is he's going to turn the they to a we uh, really quickly here in the book of Romans. They slander people and they hate God. They are rude and proud and they brag. They invent ways to be evil, and they are disobedient to their parents. They are without understanding, disloyal, without affection, and without mercy. Though they know God's decision that those who persist in such practices deserve death, they not only keep doing these things, but also approve others who practice them. So every single one of you, this is chapter 2, verse 1. So every single one of you who judge others, <laughs> this is the like gotcha moment. Every single one of you who judge others is without any excuse. You condemn yourself when you judge another person because the one who is judging is doing the same thing. It's a profound way to end that text. And so I want you to notice um, two phrases, and we're going to unpack this together. Um, degrading. This, this behavior, this kind of empire behavior that he's critiquing here is degrading. Uh, degrading to all of creation and degrading to all humans. Keep in mind here, this beautiful, profound text in Romans 1 about like the creation is already declaring things about God. We have no excuse. Um, Imagine uh, what comes later in Romans 8 about all of creation longing for the redemption of all things, creation being held in bondage and creation suffering. Like there's a clear concern here um, for how the way humans walk upon the land affects creation and the way creation is trying to get our attention. And then the term unnatural. Uh, when we think of natural and unnatural, I want you to keep the I, I, this kind of understanding of creation in your mind. Like what is just the natural way things work in creation? And what are things that we maybe do to our own bodies or do to one another that is unnatural? And if what we do is unnatural leads to degradation, then there's a profound kind of contrast here between God's way and the way of the world. So we're told at the very beginning, um, 
of this chunk of text, that uh, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. These are like religious words, like loaded religious words. Wrath, ungodliness. Um, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Suppressing the truth. So there's some kind of truth that is revealed in nature, uh, but there are there's this wickedness that suppresses the truth. So we no longer see what's being revealed in nature. Somehow we've lost our ability to pay attention to nature. It's really profound. So, so Paul is suggesting here that there is some kind of knowledge or some kind of truth about God that could be gained in paying attention to nature. And that, that, that's very simple. It's a very simple truth, but it could be quite profound, I think, if uh, uh, evangelicals like ourselves uh, kind of meditated on that. There's knowledge and truth about God to be gained in paying attention to nature. I got to go on a really epic hike last year with Jeremy Clegger, and he, uh, we were talking about this. Um, you know, in Isaiah chapter 6, there's this verse that is quite uh, well known, um, where Isaiah is in the temple of the Lord, and um, the temple's shaking, and the, the presence of God is there, and it's really profound. And he sees um, these kind of angelic beings proclaiming, uh, holy, 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 which we just sort of sang, um, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's profound. The whole earth. The trees the orcas, the earthworms, the star, well, I guess star, is that in the earth? In the ancient cosmology, yes, the stars are part of the earth. The whole earth, the whole land is full of God's glory. Um, and there's this uh, way the Hebrew works in that phrase where an alternative translation could be, and I think this is very profound, is that the fullness of the earth is the glory of God. And, and I think sometimes as evangelicals, we get stuck thinking that like the whole earth is filled with sin and wickedness and, and you know, pagans or something. Um, but there's this tiny little community in one corner of the world that has Jesus and the glory of God, and we have to try and spread it to kind of counteract the forces of darkness that cover the earth. And, and it's amazing to imagine that just this, this, this anxiety that like melts away when you read Isaiah 6, like the whole earth is full of God's glory. Just full. The whole earth is full, bursting with God's glory. Every day of the week, every second of every day, the whole earth is full of it. It's not my job to plant God's glory and like spread the glory of God. The whole earth is drenched in Christ. And I, as a believer, get to walk this earth and bear witness to it and notice it and pay attention to it and trust it. There's uh, communities in like Japan that know something about God's glory because the land proclaims it differently there than here in Alberta. And I could go to Japan and listen and bear witness and encounter the glory of God and have a posture of uh, humility uh, to have the posture of a student or a guest in the world to hear the story the earth is telling about God's glory. Uh, last semester at Ambrose, I had the great honor of teaching the book of Isaiah, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I, it really blew the students' mind to see, and two of them are here, great, um, yay, uh, and they'll totally nod their heads at this, that the book of Isaiah is packed full of uh, nature imagery. Almost every chapter in the first like 15 chapters compares humans to trees. Uh, the book of Isaiah gives personhood to all trees, personhood to rivers, personhood to valleys. You have the trees clapping their hands. Um, you have the desert singing, you have uh, the soil rejoicing. Um, Isaiah 34, there's this profound text that says, um, you know, because of war and human sin and human violence and human lust, like, for, like greed and our desire for power is destroying the earth. And what was once a beautiful garden is becoming just a parched desert because all the war and violence and greed. Um, which tracks, if you read the news, like war is not good for land. We cut down all the uh, Sitka spruce in Haida Gwaii to make jets for World War II because that wood is the best for airplanes. 
So war leads to the destruction, the degradation of the natural world. Um, and then Isaiah 35, though, after kind of going in this downward motion of like all of creation is being destroyed by human sin and human greed and lust for more power. But then in 35, it begins with the desert can bloom and sing. That God plants gardens in deserts, that God is a gardening God, a desert God, even if the human heart is to turn the earth into a parched desert. Think about the way our biblical story begins. Adam and Eve are in a garden and they are naked and unashamed. That's so profound, the vision of being naked and unashamed. When I think of how much shame I carry in my body, the, the toxic shame, how I, I was so, you know, from a young age, we, we discover shame and we hide from each other. And the beginning of our story is this beautiful image of, of connectedness, of abundance, and of being unashamed and seen. Safe, it's safe to be seen. That's this kind of ethic that God's kingdom would look like a garden where humans are seen and unashamed. But the book of Genesis actually ends on the extreme opposite reality. So it starts in Eden, it ends in Egypt. Think about Egypt. You have pharaohs and you have enslaved. You have violent slave masters brutalizing these vulnerable um, enslaved Hebrew people. There's poverty, there's starvation, there's debt that leads to slavery, debt that leads one to desperate acts such as selling your own children into slavery. Um, and the earth is suffering. There's famine in the land. There's no rain. There's no food. And so um, at the end of the book of Genesis, there is a huge disparity between the rich and the poor. Um, no doubt the Pharaoh has a big feast to enjoy every night while the Hebrews were told don't ever get to taste meat. Um, so you start. God's way, God's ethic is this garden. The humans are equal, they're naked, they're safe, they're connected. And it ends when, you know, you kind of let humans captain the ship for a while and we have empires, we have slavery, we have extreme wealth, we have disparity. In Isaiah 14, um, it's a famous chapter. It's the, the chapter of the Bible where the word uh, Lucifer allegedly occurs. It's a Latin thing. Um, but it's this profound chapter because you have um, when the great emperor of the empire finally comes down from his throne, is brought low, it says in the beginning of Isaiah 14 that the junipers and the cedars rejoice, singing, no one comes to cut us down anymore. The cedar trees will rejoice. Um, in Joel chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, the prophet speaks directly to the soil and to the wild animals. He says, do not be afraid, O soil. Be glad and rejoice. Do not be afraid, O wild animals, for our land is becoming green again. It's in Joel chapter 2, 21 to 23. Think about all the times Jesus is like, look at the land. Consider the lilies, he says. Even Solomon, the, you know, Jeff Bezos of his day couldn't look as good as one of these lilies no matter how hard he tried. Consider the lilies. Consider the ravens. Consider the sparrows. Consider the mustard seed. Consider the farmer. Consider the soil. It's always consider, consider. Look at the whole earth is filled with my glory. Look what you could learn. Look what you could learn. Uh, sometimes I feel in my life these days like I'm stuck in a video game and like I just got to kill this final boss and then I can turn it off and go outside. But there's always another boss, right? I can't turn it off. I can't get away. There's always something else. And I'm like, eventually I'll get to turn this off. I just got to beat the, I don't know anything about video games. So like if I sound like I know, I think there's bosses and side quests. Explains ADHD really well, a lot of side quests. And eventually you're done. You finish the game. And then you get to shut off the screen and go outside. I think how many of us have continued on the video game and we've not yet gone outside. And Jesus is like, consider turning off the video game. Consider going outside. Consider the lilies. 
and, and we learn. Um, the more I think, the older I get, the more I pay attention to nature. The more I am struck by Jesus's words that um, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land." Jesus saying, "Become like a little child." And I think of my kids who could play in mud puddles or climb hoodoos in Dinosaur Provincial Park for days and days and days. I think, man, nature has a lot to teach us. Nature has a lot to teach us about connection and interdependence. Uh, I read that poem at the beginning of our gathering today because it's just blowing my mind. The more I've read, especially from indigenous authors and learned from indigenous stewards of the land, that the land is not competing with itself. The land is very much cooperating and sharing uh, responsibility for the flourishing of one another. Trees aren't competing, it turns out. They're always supporting each other. There's a fungal network beneath the soil where trees can communicate to each other from miles and miles away. Um, they're not competing, they're cooperating. I learned last year that there's uh, living organisms in your body, more living organisms in your body than there are cells in your body that bear your name. So there's more of them than there are of you. And 90% of your serotonin is produced by those living organisms. And serotonin is the hormone that makes you feel connected and loved. Living organisms that have nothing to do with you genetically, that are not related to you in any way, shape, or form, are producing the hormones that make you feel seen and loved. What is the self? What? This makes no sense to me, that your, the bacteria in your gut is producing serotonin, and the bacteria in your gut is the exact same um, strains and ratios as the bacteria in the soil where your food comes from. Nature is teaching us that we are incredibly connected. Uh, that Darwin was perhaps wrong. It's not the survival of the fittest. Uh, we learned this year, much to the chagrin of many, uh, how do I fill in that blank? Did you know that there's no such thing as alpha and beta in wolf packs? Doesn't exist. No animal group in the world has an alpha. It's not a thing. They're actually all working hard together to protect each other and care for each other, and maybe different animals in the pack have different roles, but none of them is the alpha or the beta. It's amazing. Uh, in our garden here, and in, I bet you, Michelle's garden, um, we, you can learn from indigenous ways of planting, like the three sisters, where if you plant corn, squash, and beans together, the beans can climb the corn, and the squash can shade the soil and keep the moisture, and if you put them together, they work better. Um, because creation is teaching us that we were designed to be connected. It's unnatural and degrading to sever those connections. And guess what happens to our world when we sever that connection? I actually wanted to um, geek out for a moment. I know some of you are like, this is lovely, and others of you are like, when are we going to talk about Romans? <laughs> Bear with. Everybody will be happy in just a moment. Um, I read this book last year, uh, actually over the course of two summers, that was really life-changing and profound called The Overstory, um, about the way nature and, and trees and forests are all so connected. And as a Christian reading it, it really was like, wow, the whole earth is filled with God's glory, and then I'd cry. Um, and there's this character in the book named Patricia Westerford, and, and she's a, a nature scientist. That's not on a, a real title. A dendrologist, I think dendrologist, someone who studies trees and forests, and she's brilliant. Um, and, and she's really obsessed with Douglas fir trees, which are the trees that grow here in Bowness. We have a, a, a several hundred-year-old Douglas fir preservation, preservation here, right? Preserve? You know what I'm trying to say. Okay, so um, in this book, Overstory, um, it's just this little thing about Patricia discovering, um, and as an early scientist, that the trees are so wildly connected. Um, it says, Patricia gives herself to the Douglas fir. Uh, their arrow straight, untapering, soaring up a hundred feet before the first branch. They're an ecosystem unto themselves, hosting more than a thousand species of invertebrate. Framer of cities, king of industrial trees, that tree without which America would have been very a very different proposition. Her favorite individuals, individual Douglas firs, stand scattered near the station. She can find them by headlamp. The largest of them must be six centuries old. 
He's so tall, so near the upper limits imposed by gravity that it takes a day and a half for him to lift water from his roots to the highest of his 65 million needles. And every branch smells of deliverance. The things she catches Douglas firs doing over the course of these years fill her with joy. When the lateral roots of two Douglas firs run into each other underground, they fuse together. Through those self-grafted knots, the two trees join their vascular systems together and become one. Networked together underground by countless thousands of miles of living fungal threads, her trees feed and heal each other, keep their young and sick alive, pool their resources and metabolites into community chests. It will take years for the picture to emerge. There will be findings, unbelievable truths, confirmed by a spreading worldwide web of researchers in Canada, Europe, Asia, all happily swapping data through faster and better channels. Her trees are far more social than even Patricia suspected. There are no individual trees. There's no such thing as an individual tree. There aren't even separate species. Everything in the forest is the forest. Competition is not separable from endless flavors of cooperation. Trees fight no more than do the leaves on a single tree. It seems most of nature isn't red in tooth and claw after all. For one, those species at the base of the living pyramid have neither tooth nor talons. But if trees share their storehouses, then every drop of red must float on a sea of green. If we look to nature, we might learn that we were created and designed for connection and interdependence, to be seen and unashamed, to be safe and loved. The ethic that we see in scripture when God has God's way is abundance. In God's garden ethic, there's space to be naked and unashamed, seen and unashamed, connected, safe, seen, honored, natural. To be natural. I think, what is a natural body in our world? I, I grew up a woman in the evangelical world, and it blows my mind that I'm like, natural means you have hair. You might have skin. Your skin might have texture. Oh, gosh, imagine accepting texture. Major industries would end tomorrow if we were just like, I have texture on my skin. There's texture. Look, a texture, a new texture each morning. Um, we sweat. In God's garden ethic, humans are embodied. They pay attention to their bodies. Obviously, as Christians, the incarnation must be at the heart of that. But in an ethic shaped by the city, I would say Egypt versus Eden, a city ethic would be uh, humans uh, interested in control, power, greed, an insatiable lust for more, more status, more reputation, more prestige. We would be disembodied. We would be severed from the land. We would be disconnected from our neighbor. And we would be really deeply ashamed of the self. And a lot of people would make a lot of money off of that reality. The more you hate yourself, the more someone else is getting paid because they're going to come and offer you a product to help you like yourself and change yourself. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that every kind of wickedness is derived from that ethic. The city ethic. It's amazing to me that Romans 1 has been used as a, a, a clobber text against um, uh, queer people. And I think, okay, wait a minute, though. Are we, we're concerned about sexuality, but not about the kind of economics that's ruining lives, um, debasing creation, and dealing in death. In um, Romans Disarmed, I want to I tell you this. There's still no little kids in the room? Okay. There's this beautiful wild thing that happens when you read about the context of a biblical text, where sometimes you're like, whoa, the text means something totally different to me now. But you know... Um, in Paul's day, uh, Emperor Nero was the emperor of Rome, and Paul's writing this letter to Rome, to the Roman Christians, so he's like in Nero's back door, uh, backyard, I mean, sorry, back door, backyard. And um, 
I want to tell you something about what it was like living in Rome and what people in power in Rome got to do to one another and, and how they got to hurt each other. Um, so Caligula, Emperor Caligula, so that'd be just before Paul, but uh, just after Jesus's death, um, also known as Gaius, he had his predecessor, uh, Emperor Tiberius, murdered. And then shortly into his reign, he declared himself a god. He was ruthless in how he treated anyone whom he perceived to be a threat, executing or forcing suicide on countless people during his reign. In his narrative on the life of Caligula, ancient historian Suetonius writes of his extravagances, not least in matters of sexuality. Boasting of incest with his sisters, he was a known sexual predator, raping, quote, almost every woman of rank in Rome, even a bride on her wedding day. He would take female guests from a dinner party, rape them in another room, and then return to comment on their performance. Suetonius also writes of Caligula's sexual escapades with various men, acting as both an active and passive partner. Historian James Bronson writes, finally, a military officer whom he had sexually humiliated once joined a conspiracy to murder him, in which they did less than four years into his reign. Suetonius records that Gaius, uh, Caligula, Caesar, was stabbed through the genitals when he was murdered. Uh, after a lifetime of sexual violence against vulnerable people, one wonders whether we can hear an echo of this gruesome story in Paul's comments on Romans 1.27, that men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own person the due penalty for their error. It would have been very famously known in Paul's day that the Caesar who violated countless men and women died by being stabbed in his own genitals by a victim of his, a survivor of his violent acts. When Caligula was succeeded by Claudius, things didn't get much better, especially in terms of a rule of extreme violence from which members of his own family were not exempt. As we have seen from the story of Caligula, those who live by violence and deceit invariably breed a violence and deceit that rebounds on themselves. Claudius was poisoned by his wife Agrippina so that her son Nero could become the emperor, who was emperor of Rome when Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans during the early years of Nero's reign. Standing in the ignoble tradition of the Caesars before him, Nero both raped his younger brother, Botanicus, and offended by a joke and worried about the possible threat that the boy might pose to his rule, had him murdered within months of Nero's ascension to the throne. His own mother, Agrippina, could come to a would come to a similar fate some years later. And the decadent debauchery of his later years was already in evidence in the youthful excesses of the young emperor. Emperor Nero would wander the streets at night with a gang of youths and at times a security detail at a discreet distance. And Nero would look for violent fun and unrestricted pleasure, which included beating, stealing, and sexually molesting passers-by. Like Caligula before him, Nero was notorious for his riotous parties, often in the open for all to see. Indeed, it seemed that everywhere he went, there was a party complete with both promiscuous and humiliating sexual acts. In one case, the spectacle ends with Nero being sexually mastered by a man that he has married as an act of humiliation for that man. Paul is condemning the sexual violence and excess that Nero and other emperors engaged in, including the deliberate use of sexual acts to overturn the natural order of things and deliberately demean and humiliate another person. But Paul's writing this letter to people in Rome, and many of them walk, if you leave your house at night, you walk in fear uh, of the violence that those in power can enact against you without any consequence. So we have uh, in Romans 1, imagine, I wonder if it sounds any different to you, that um, God gave them up to the degrading of their own bodies, that they received in their own persons the due penalty for their error, 
The, uh, 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 it seems that perhaps we've traded our garden ethic for an imperial ethic, and it's led to the de degradation of all. I think about this, um, and I think I have a picture. Um, imperial sexuality, a sexuality that is shaped by empire. Um, I, I look at my own childhood, I look at my own times as a teenager, and now as a, a, a woman at like a weird age where I like, I, I use both like acne cream and wrinkle cream. You know, it's like the weird like merging of the decades transition. And I think, where did I learn to hate my body? Where did I learn to, to degrade my body? And where did I learn to put so much money and so much time and so much energy into doing unnatural things with my body? I think of how porn has shaped our imagination. Um, if you've ever seen pornography, you know that it's fake, that there is a set designer, a script writer, and there's obviously someone in the background coaching uh, uh, actors to pretend they're having a good time when they're clearly not. They're clearly experiencing discomfort, perhaps pain, indignity, uh, and they're taught, told to pretend as if it feels really, really good. And, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks in the world, dare I say the vast majority, watch it and participate in it and allow it to shape their imagination for their, their love of their own body and their love of their neighbor's body. And maybe maybe uh, porn isn't something that shapes us all the time and maybe it doesn't shape you until you're a bit older, but what about Disney? Um, I remember as a young girl noticing how tiny the waist of all those uh, pr princesses were and how, you know, perfect their body was and how big their eyes were and their long hair and it was like, I can be like that. I would think of the Barbie dolls I played with as a kid and we know that if a woman actually had those um, measurements, she wouldn't be able to stand. What's unnatural? What ways do we degrade ourselves and degrade one another? If I asked you, all of you, um, all genders, how old you were when you first went on a diet, uh, I know for me that was eight. I remember putting on my runners and doing laps around the playground to lose weight at eight. Eleven years old is how old I was when I first started using anti-aging cream because I started using makeup and I'd pull my eyes like this to get the mascara and some of the older women in my life were worried that that would cause you know, wrinkles if I did that. And since I'm already wearing makeup, I needed to get some anti-aging cream. I think of the ways that um, I've hurt myself with hot wax, trying to rip body hair from my body, tweezers, razors, chemicals, chemical burns, laser hair removal, chemical burns, every day. I, I, Every day. There was an article that came out recently um, on, on the Gospel Coalition about how, like, you know, manly men and biblical men should, like, let their beards grow, you know, because gender matters and, like, men should get to just grow their beards so that we can tell. And I was like, yo, I wax my mustache every two weeks. Like, why is it that the, in the Gospel Coalition, the, the biblical men were like, do what's natural, let your body hair grow? I was like, can I, can I get in on that just a little? Like, could I let my body do what it's doing? Would I be allowed to let my body hair grow? Because I'm Scottish. There's a lot of it. It would save me a lot of money and a lot of time if I could just let it grow. Like a whole new Disney princess movie. Let it grow. <laughs> let it grow. Honor God. The glory of God is being told by my body. And I don't know how to claim that because my mind and my body has all been shaped by an imperial sexuality. This is I have to be on a diet and I have to be burning my skin to fight wrinkles and I have to be ripping body hair out every day. And when I look in the mirror, I have to hate what I see. It's the secret to having a nice body is to stare in the mirror once a day and hate what you see.
I learned preparing the sermon that the weight loss industry is a $192 billion industry, and that was in 2019. And uh, it's projected to reach $295 billion by the year 2027. My daughter will be 14. And it will be a $297 billion industry. The anti-aging industry in 2021 is $60 billion and projected by 2030 to be $119 billion. Ember will be 17. Uh, the porn industry, we don't really know how to estimate how much money that's worth, but it's nearing $100 billion a year. All of us, whether you're gay or straight, are participating in what's unnatural and degrading. From a young age, boys are taught they have to be athletic and muscular and strong and not have any emotions, always the big spoon, never the little. To not have any emotional needs and to provide, 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 even if it means living your life in a soul-sucking job that is destroying your neighborhood and the earth where you live. It's unnatural, and dare I say, degrading. In the imperial ethic, uh, an imperial sexuality, we have a, there's a giver and a receiver. There's one partner that grins and bears, bears it because the other partner has needs. Uh, sex is a duty in an imperial ethic. Sex is currency in an imperial ethic. Sex is status, and sex is shame. In an imperial ethic, domestic violence is normal and the degradation of the human body is virtuous. In a garden ethic, vulnerability is normal. Authenticity, trust, safety, intimacy, shared enjoyment of God's bountiful creation. In God's garden ethic, our bodies um, exist uh, and, and um, abundance exists not in spite of our bodies. Mutual respect, shared joy, shared honor, celebration of life and spirit in the image of God exists in our bodies, not in spite of them. It's profound. And so I think what Paul's doing here in Romans 1 is he's inviting us to imagine a community shaped by a garden ethic and not a city ethic where you're allowed to exist and your body's not an apology. Paul's inviting us to be homemakers that the book of Romans is a homemaking text. It's like, do you feel at home? Because if you hate yourself and you hate your body and you hate and you feel you're just covered in shame, um, how can you feel at home? And how can we be people of compassion that work towards other people feeling at home? A Jesus ethic, an ethic where we are concerned about bearing fruits of the spirit, kindness, gentleness, goodness, that we would be a community that transgresses the us versus them narrative. I think Paul is writing to a divided community. We got Gentiles and Jews, those on the left and those on the right. And he's saying, yes, we can play into the stereotype of them. And, and, and maybe they go off and play into the stereotype of us. But imagine if we were in this together and it was like, hey, I degrade my body every day. I do things that are unnatural to my body every day. I deny my hunger. I deny my need for sleep. I deny my need for rest. I feel deeply ashamed of everything my body does. And I don't want to be a prisoner to that anymore either. And we could learn from each other, and we could set our sights on what creation is telling us. So um, I want to propose um, in this book on the book of Romans, which I love so much, that Dave King actually set me up with this about two years ago, and it blew my mind. Um, the author proposes a, a modern day, uh, a, a new translation on Romans chapter one, or a bit of a, a targum or a madrash on Romans chapter one, and it goes like this. And then uh, we will, um, I'll, I'll suggest some action steps, thinking of Eric Reynolds, who's not here. What do we do? I have some. And then we'll, we'll pray and go to the communion table. 
So imagine if the letter from Paul sounded like this, and I, I challenge you, um, if you're reading along, it, it actually follows Romans 1, 24 to 2, verse 1 very well. Paul writes in this translation, We are called to live in the truth. We are called to embody truth in our lives, but we have traded in the truth for a lie. Our imaginations have been taken captive, and we can hardly dream of what life outside the grip of idolatry would look like. We can scarcely imagine a life that isn't enslaved to consumption. We can't even begin to get our heads around justice and righteousness. Generosity and contentment are all alien ideas to us. And an economics of enough is impossible to conceive, let alone live. And it's also empty. It's also foolish. It's also senseless. We've crawled into bed with idols and not known the Lord. We've bent the knee to idolatry and not worshipped the Creator who is blessed forever. Having embraced an insatiable idolatry of greed, having been taken captive by an idolatry of consumption, our desires are perverted, our passions run wild. We are lost in a sexual fantasy land that is deathly. Having suppressed what all creation declares about the nature of God, having blinded ourselves to the Creator's steadfast love, faithfulness, and justice, we now bear the image of our idols in lives of voracious lust, self-serving infidelity, and sexual violence. Our young people package themselves as sexual products ready for consumption. Other of our young people take and conquer, racking up one sexual exploit after another. Our sexuality is divorced from covenantal intimacy and reduced to cheap, carnal entertainment. But this is not why God created us as sexual beings. All of this is a betrayal of who we are called to be. The image of God is perverted by such sexual idolatry, and remember, idols are insatiable. They always require sacrifice. They are never satisfied, and they have a terrible appetite for our children. There is no idolatry apart from child sacrifice. This is the devastating truth of our culture. Yes, idols are insatiable. They always require a sacrifice, and they're never satisfied. They heap up the bodies of others, consumed with a gluttonous sexual hunger. Faithful intimacy, commitment, and sexual dignity are placed on their altars. This is the predatory culture where we live. Children are our most vulnerable victims, even as we are victimized in our own predations. This is the bitter fruit of idolatry. This is the sexuality of empire. So it is no surprise that God who gives us up to insatiable lust and who gives us up to perverted desire and gives us up to a debased vision of life, a mind of debauchery, is no wonder that this is what happens when you refuse to know God because you are too busy with the idols. But make no mistake, this idolatry bears bad fruit a deeply distorted life, a life full of evil longing, greed, hatred, envy, death, breaking community, destroying families, arrogance, insolent disrespect, foolishness, infidelity, and a ruthlessness that is born of a heart that has turned its back on love. All of this, this imagination, this worldview, this cultural practice, this way of life, all of this is in service of a culture of death. So don't be surprised if this culture dies. And don't be surprised if this way of life will kill you, even as you applaud and cheer everyone who lives this way. And let's be clear, I'm not talking about them, somehow in contrast to us. No, my friends, we are all in this mess together. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I would love to worship at the altar of our God and trust what creation is saying about God's glory. And I would like to get off the train that is destroying our earth. It's coming for my little girl. It's coming for your little girl. I'd like to get off that train. So what can we do? It's so simple. Listen, 
Grieve the way you have been shaped by and participated in an unnatural imperial ethic. Speak up this week. Notice your shame when it arrives. Just notice it. Notice how you participate in your own degradation. Notice your own pain. Notice your own shame. Notice the way you look in the mirror and that, or notice the way um, your Instagram is trying to sell you products because it can tell which parts of you it hates. Notice the way you want to buy the product. Mm. Holy. Notice your shame. Notice your hatred. And just the act of noticing alone. I don't exactly know the plan. I don't exactly know how we get off the train, but I know that we first grieve and we notice. And noticing the amount of shame and degradation and ways we hate ourselves is, is, is contributing to something that's destroying our world. And I would love to become a person, and I hope it's not too late in my mid-30s, um, to turn towards self-acceptance and radical self-love, to see the way my body does its thing and love it. There's a poet, I have a slide here, named Jared Anderson. I put this on morning prayers this week because I love this poem so much. I think it's a, it embodies really beautifully being like, hey, you're, you're part of nature and you're a wonder. And he writes, um, hello, traveler. Greet yourself as you would a stranger walking in a circle of honey-colored lantern light through a hushed and watchful forest. Many thanks to you, wanderer, who walks in open defiance of this world's dangers in order to meet its many wonders. Gratitude, brave soul, one of the wonders is you. The grief that we share together will certainly cultivate compassion for one another. The part of me that hates me acknowledges the part of you that hates you. Let's grieve together. Let's get off that train and start to cultivate compassion and empathy. And then maybe you could let yourself be seen because you feel safe. And we move towards the garden ethic. So perhaps this week you could connect with an awakener, someone here with you now. Ask them about their story, their pain. Ask them when they first went on a diet or started, I don't know, taking disgusting protein shakes. Ask them about their dreams. This week, you could start to love your neighbor as yourself. We could become like the trees, take care of each other, participate in the most dangerous, wild thing ever, generosity, hospitality, curiosity, and honor. This is God's garden ethic. And anything outside of that is a degradation to yourself and to your neighbor, to the next generation. And so let's be an embodied people, uh, a, a, a creation people. Uh, in closing, I would like to pray with you um, the prayer of St. Francis, and then Michelle's going to lead us in communion. I love this prayer very much, and it feels like Paul's whole prayer throughout the book of Romans for his community, and maybe it could be a, a prayer for us in these coming weeks. Um, thinking of Amy and Harriet. One time, David and Ember sang this prayer as a song to awaken when Ember was like five. Um, and it, uh, the prayer says, Lord, pray with me. Make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, 
It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.